Welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Was the moment that I went, hold on a second, I don't need to project anything. What I was attempting to do was tell society what they wanted to hear or what I thought they wanted to hear, which was to have this alpha bravo male who doesn't talk about pain, who doesn't talk about vulnerability. And I was like, it's actually killing me. There's something very refreshing about someone in a position of power having the courage to be vulnerable. Indeed, Ben Vasiliou, CEO of Youth Projects and a driving force behind their revolutionary social enterprise, The Little Social Cafe, credits that same vulnerability with being the catalyst for major change both in his professional and personal lives. Having navigated a life below the poverty line, identity crisis, being a young father, and the trials of the top position at an organization committed to breaking the cycle of disadvantage, Ben has an extraordinary story to share. And a special shout out to Banyol City Council, whom Ben credits with having the vision and resources needed to make the little social cafe in Rosanna a reality. If you're listening to this podcast and based in Melbourne, Australia, do make sure to swing past, grab a delicious coffee for yourself, and maybe sprinkle some kindness into someone else's day through their pay it forward service, which allows you to purchase a drink or snack for someone experiencing homelessness or accessing Youth Project's homelessness services. Ben Vasiliou, thank you for joining me on the Doing Epic Stuff podcast this morning. How are you today, sir? I'm fantastic, Mike, all things considered. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. What about you? I'm good. Ben, you strike me as a, a particularly positive cat. Even from the first couple of chats we've had, I think we share that. There's, there's positive vibes about you. Would you say that's kind of like a, do people know you as a positive guy in general? I think so. And I appreciate the comments. I think, I mean, I could use as many analogies as you like, the glass half full. Um, but I really think that if you're not moving forward, you're ultimately moving backwards. So, yeah, I think, you know, some lived experiences, both positive and negative in my life, have taught me that we get one shot, one opportunity. Um, and yes, I'm quoting Eminem from my teenage days. <laughs> and I take that forward with me and try and spread that optimism as much as I possibly can. Yeah, it's interesting. I find that people who have uh, danced with some adversity in their life, as long, as long as they come out of it the other side, they do tend to have that mindset it's something it's like a recurring theme in just people that i've met through life i, I don't really have a question to, to do with that <laughs> yeah look i mean there's so many moving pieces to that i know it wasn't a question but i have and am filled with many statements of response um i think the the first thing is that we need to understand that there's on any given night in australia 116,000 people who are experiencing homelessness and one in eight people live beneath the poverty line so although we are a very wealthy country, we're a very um, amazing land, we've got a lot of work to do. I think for me, um, what we think about in terms of optimism and um, opportunity and hope um, is something that you can spread, um, but it's not necessarily something that everyone is conditioned to believe. You know, we think mm -hmm. about the, the traumas that people have experienced, um, the, the paths that their lives have taken them down. They're not necessarily being surrounded with that optimism, with that hope, with that faith. So um, for me, one thing that I do like to lean on is those experiences and how we get ourselves back up, how we get ourselves moving again. Because although I'm incredibly optimistic and happy all the time, uh, I also have my down days. I also have um, experienced poor mental health along my journey. So it's not necessarily saying that, um, you know, you have to be from the middle class or you have to have had a fantastic upbringing to enjoy the luxury of optimism. It's, uh, it's conditioning. It's about retraining your brain. It's about rewiring your brain. Uh, and it's also looking to the wonderful resources that already exist. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, online toolkits for meditation and positive mental health. I'm talking about um, real people sharing your experiences um, and really promoting the power of vulnerability because I think, that the more stories that we are open to and the more stories that we listen to and hear, uh, the more inclined we are to share 
um, empathy and compassion for those that um, really need a, a hand up, particularly in these pretty tough times. Ben, you've been quoted as having said, I've lived the experience of being poor and having to fight to build a good life. That's a pretty, pretty powerful statement in and of itself. Could you just provide a little bit of context uh, maybe to listeners regarding this statement, sort of where you've come from and, and where that statement has come from, please? Yeah, sure. Look, uh, I mean, the again, I just want to highlight the power of vulnerability because it's important for people who are out there listening now. Um, if you're struggling, um, the opportunity to talk and tell your story um, promotes such an environment where people start to care and understand that it's happening to everyone. Um, we all have our struggles, we all have our journeys, and mine no different to others, but really I'll condense what is a 36-year lifelong story um, into a, a very short statement here, but um, I grew up in Housing Commission down on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, my parents split when I was very young, uh, 11. My dad left and soon became addicted to opioids, heroin, unfortunately, um, and although he's been clean for quite some time, that was a really scary time in our lives. Um, my mum was then diagnosed with cancer when I was 12 and unfortunately she lost her battle. Um, she was 36 years old um, and she left behind three teenagers, my older sister, myself and my little sister. And really for us, <clears throat> we were left, there was nothing um, because mum was so sick. We didn't own our own home. So really starting at a pretty low foundation. Um, but what had happened is my mum had, our mum had instilled in us a sense of confidence that we could get out um, with no disrespect to the area that we grew up in, it was, was a significant amount of um, poverty, crime, and there was this kind of feeling that we needed to make good of ourselves. And, and that legacy carries on today. Um, you know, we spent many months living off, you know, magic two-minute noodles and not sure about how to pay um, the rent and the bills. We were very lucky and fortunate to have my older sister who was 19 at the time, and she's really strong and steadfast and she made it to university, the first out of the three of us. So, you know, we battled from day one. It was, um, you know, something that we thought that everyone experienced. It's just how life was. We didn't understand we were poor until mum died and there was no money in the bank. So that's the struggle. That's the reality. Over time, we experienced other challenges. Um, but for me, what it was about was looking at my two sisters and there was this pact and it still exists to this day. We are so tight. Um we are so close, but we made a pact with each other that we would do good, that we would get out and, and live mum's legacy, which was to be the best that we can be. And I've carried that model on with our family and my two children now, um, that we are um, healthy, um, that we have solid foundations and that we get to take on the world. And that's exciting. And we should never look back. We should always learn from our experiences, but we should always be looking forward um, and not be victims and not cry poor. We had an opportunity to get out. We took that ladder. We worked our asses off um, and we continue to do that to this day. We failed a number of times, particularly me as a teenager. I made some silly decisions. I hung with the wrong crew, um, but I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to be surrounded by not only my, my close relatives, but um, a wonderful youth worker who picked me up in my teenage years and said to me, she looked me dead in the eye and she was like, don't do that. <laughs> she was like, don't go down that path. You have an opportunity. You have this wonderful brain. You've got intellect. You've got compassion. You've got empathy. Please do something with that. Um, and she took it upon herself to hire me. I was a youth work trainee. Um, and here I am 17, 18 years later, trying to empower um, and amplify the voice of lived experience to make sure that people from all walks of life are involved in decision-making across the country. It's important, particularly um, of what we've seen through the pandemic, is that politics have gone to the extreme left and the extreme right. We're seeing significant mm -hmm. polarisation, but they're such small groups. And there's the rest of us in the middle who, you know, dare I say us moderates, um, need to amplify our voices and let people know how the system has failed us but also not to necessarily just focus on the fight, focus on the opportunity. How do we change that system? How do we drive significant impact for the most vulnerable people in the community and let them become the leaders of tomorrow? I think that's incredibly exciting. I was going to ask you a question about what you believed were the key factors that made the difference in your ability to climb out of the, the above the poverty line. But it sounds like 
aside from having this strong community of family, like you had family members who cared about your well-being and you'd made an agreement to together get to a better place. The the thing which really stood out to me was having that that youth worker who it sounds like they were pivotal. Are you still in touch with that person, Ben, out of interest? I sure am. Yeah, definitely. I am. <laughs> Jane, uh, Jane, if you're listening, here's your shout out. Um, I think the, the one thing that I would like to just stop and reflect on and promote, I suppose, is the ultra feminist inside of me, is that at every step of my life where I face significant challenges, there's always been a strong woman who has guided me, supported me, whether it be my mum, my sisters, my aunt, my youth worker, and then later in life, a couple of wonderful mentors. Um, And again, Mandy, Sue, if you're out there listening, um, those women have guided me, have taken me under their wing and and really made me and shaped the person that I am today. Um, And they care. That's the, you know, the ultimate thing is just to care. So I think that that's what I try and instill in all of the people that work for us is that we um, see the whole person, not the issue that they present with. And also we provide no judgment. There is no absolutely no judgment on the way that we engage with people. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to, to touch on is that not everybody gets the opportunity to rise up. You know, if you think about um, particularly now during the pandemic where so many people had to rely on government support, both JobKeeper and JobSeeker, coming out the other side, even with the Commonwealth uh, increase, um, the JobSeeker allowance is still like less than $44 a day. So if you think about your whole life starting from beneath $44 a day, not dropping down. So we're talking right now through the pandemic, we're supporting a lot of people who we would say were stable, had stable housing, had an income, and then that was taken away from them. The government support kicked in. They were getting $750 a week, right? Mm. That, that's not what they're getting now. We're talking about people who are starting below the line and they've got to live on $44 a day once they become an adult. And that's the basis. You know, there's arguments here for universal income support. There's a variety of policy changes that we need to make in Australia. But what I just want to remind everyone when they look at, at people, don't look down because it's a very, very low base to start from. Um, when we see conversations or hear people say that, you know, um, the most vulnerable, they chose that lifestyle or whatever it might be, just remember that base. Like I, I vision right now, if I was to live on $44 a day, um, we'd, we'd be living in a car if we could afford to pay the registration on it because it's almost $1,000 a year. Like every single thing is a challenge for people on low income and who have come from entrenched poverty. And it's just not a fair or just system. And that's why I continue to talk. I'm not the only story, um, but I hope that that has um, some influence over the conversation, particularly at a policy level, because that's what we want to change, right? Absolutely. And I wonder, Ben, if right now is the ultimate time for change, because what I've observed, even from people who I've known professionally, who've had their own businesses taken away from them overnight, that happened to a number of people I knew uh, in the marketing industry who've been living good lives and then were faced with liquidation uh, question marks over their business. And that actually happened uh, like for a number of businesses. These were people who were facing things like the, the risk of poverty for the first time in their life with families. And that's happened on such a huge scale. I wonder if this message, this is the first time that it will really be able to get traction at the scale it needs to because people are more receptive to it than ever before because let's face it, we're human and we mostly give a shit when it affects us that this this might be that ultimate time. I feel like people are, especially in Australia, where where yeah. for the first time our way of life is being threatened. We're such we yeah. we are the ultimate bubble country. And you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm confident. I'm confident that this is the time. And and as you said, that 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 should result in a different sort of human being elected at different levels of government, being able to make more change than ever before is, is the hope, right? That's ultimately what we're waiting 100%. for. Yeah. And hell yeah, now's our moment. Like this is our time. Um, this is the thing that we need to understand. There's the ability to influence and then there is the patriarchy, um, complete capitalist structure that we need to attack. So 
on the first, let's think about the impact that we can all make locally. We can be kinder, we can care, we can donate money, we can be more considerate to the people in our environment. Um, if, if you think about the way that we have changed our work-life balance, let's promote more flexibility for people, let's promote more entrepreneurial um, skills. You know, there's lots of things that we can do, but let's attack the system. Like, let's be honest, the system is not failing. The system is working exactly as it was designed by the patriarchy for the patriarchy, by middle-aged white men for middle-aged white men. Let's think about that. So when we look at the structure, we need to get more people from a social justice background uh, and a grassroots level elected to government. Um, but also we need to have more power of voice. There's 151 federally elected local, uh, sorry, lower house members, right? They're the real kind of decision makers with the Senate. But there's 25 million of us. You know, there's, there's a power in that to share a voice to say, actually, we're all in this together. The challenge is that politicians have so many competing priorities, and I understand that. But the people that are really influencing policy, the top 1%, the incredibly wealthy people whose wealth has grown through the pandemic, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, they need cheap labour. Never forget that. They have pressure on minimum wage because they need cheap labour to continue to make the profit margins that they do. I want every person in Australia to understand that the company that you work for needs you to generate their profit. That's how business works. The lower the wages, the higher the margin. But we need to flip that conversation and say, well, actually, if we were to empower employees, if we were to support people from a variety of backgrounds to get employment opportunities, they would work harder and smarter for your business and help you make more profit. You know, there's other alternatives to squashing minimum wage and keeping people down in the lower classes. But for anyone that thinks that it's not a fight, then you're in for a surprise. It's a fight. We're fighting against people that actually want to keep people earning low incomes. That's how the system works. And that's what we have to dismantle. Powerful stuff. It, it really is a battle against the status quo. It's reading between the lines. <laughs> it is. It is. Let's, let's come back to how we, anyone listening to this, can get involved and help. We'll come back to that point. First, I want to keep sort of riffing on your journey a little bit because, look, I've got this, I'm in this super lucky position where I'm talking to the CEO of Youth Projects, which is, you know, this is awesome and, and a wonderful part of, you know, me starting the Doing Epic Stuff project and not really knowing where it would go, but finding myself in this situation thinking, geez, this was a good decision to start something like this because I've got this great opportunity. So I want to unpack Ben a little bit more first. Now, you've ended up in this situation where you're essentially responsible as a CEO of Youth Projects for the well-being of over 125 members of staff, which is, you know, outstanding, incredible stuff. Just thinking about the, the, this sort of transformation from what you were to where you are as a CEO, can you recall any sort of formative experiences that perhaps led you to believe that you, Ben, could be a leader? could be this kind of leader at this scale? What, 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 where did this come from? Because the average person doesn't walk around thinking, I'm going to be CEO. Yeah, look, I, that's, a, that's such a tough question. I don't, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe one thing comes to mind, which I'll touch on in a second, but I suppose in the early days of my career, it was really about doing and just, um, you know, generating income, number one, for my very young family. I had my first child at 20. Um, if anybody was to ask for advice, don't do that. <laughs> that is an <laughs> incredibly, that is a challenging uh, way to choose to have a family at 20 and it's, it's very expensive. So don't do that. Um, but it was about combining passion and combining the need to generate an income. Um, and I naturally had the loudest voice in the room. But I think the most important thing to understand is the loudest voice in the room only got me through the first sort of few years, the early days of my career. Um, and I was looking up at people who also have really loud voices. And I just thought that was the way that you lead. It was directive and it was telling people and it was being the most intelligent in the room and knowing all the statistics and da 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 da, da. But there was a, a bit of a moment when I saw a new leader, someone who came in um, to an organisation. I'd reached general manager in my last organisation, Skills Plus, a wonderful nonprofit. Um, and a lady by the name of Sue Catamol, who's currently the CEO at St. Vincent de Paul um, Society in Victoria, joined as CEO and I was reporting to her and I was watching her kind of observe and make comment, but also influence from behind the scenes. She didn't need to be the loud voice. 
um, because I was. But behind the scenes, she was able to build relationships. And I went, hold on a second. This is actually a journey for me from vanity to self-confidence. I was Mm -hmm. projecting um, strength and telling people what to do and being the boss. And I was like, no, 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 no. This this ain't going to get me anywhere. Um, And I started, you know, the discovery of self-confidence, you know, understanding that I I didn't need to be great at everything. Um, But what I really enjoyed was leading people to make the change I had made when I first started as a youth worker. I enjoyed that probably more than the direct client contact. And I was like, okay, well, if I want to do this, um, then I'm going to need to be really good with people and I'm going to need to start listening to hear, not listening to respond. And that was a big transition for me. When someone would talk, I always had an answer. I was like, bang, this is the answer. This is what we're going to do. Well, actually, that's not what people want. That's not how you develop. Um, and ultimately, my success is born from everybody that reports to me. So, yeah, I went on that, that journey of self-discovery to get to self-confidence, let go of my vanity, open up the vulnerability and talk about my experience and my ideas um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to lead Skills Plus for, for quite a number of years and then took the opportunity at Youth Projects four years ago, um, primarily because I was incredibly passionate about youth unemployment and youth homelessness, but I could see that there was significant impact um, occurring at the front line and um, we could modernise and sophisticate that and get to where we are today. Um, the number one thing that I always like to remind people is that you have to surround yourself with people who are either A, better than you, or B, have different talents to you. Because surrounding myself with 100, and, I think it's 138 now, 138 Bens would be a disaster. <laughs> the, world, the world only needs one Ben. Um, but the team that I've been able to form around me are different to me. They have different skills. We have an environment where challenging what I have to say and what I think is credible and a really cool thing to do. Um, We like to amplify each other's voices and make sure that we play on each other's strengths. And, you know, the ultimate success is the proof in the pudding. We've gone from, and I'm not saying revenue is everything, but we've gone from an organisation that was struggling to tip sort of 5 million um, when I joined, we'll we'll make 12.5 million turnover this year. Um, You know, our balance sheet has grown um, two and a half times. We've got more assets um, we've got a significant brand in the, the charity space. So I'm really proud of that, but that's not from me. That's from a recognition that my vanity needed to take a seat um, and let my self-confidence take over. That's cool. I, there almost feels like there was a, a like a transformation bet- from a very heavily alpha personality, that brash, loud, just make sure you're being heard, not really so important what you're being heard for, but everyone recognizes you to more of that like Sigma personality where you're a bit more behind the scenes, pulling the strings, still a leader, but kind of a little bit of a leader from the shadows and just making sure everything happens like it needs, more like an architect rather than the the general in charge of the army. That kind of feels like to me that the transition you kind of went through, Ben. I think everyone still needs to have that little bit of general in them from time to time especially yeah. if you plan to get to that C-suite level, at some point you've got to be able to put on the boots and stomp a little bit, I think. Oh, for sure. For sure you do. You've got to be hungry. You've got to be hungry and you've got to be intelligent. That's the one thing that we look for. Um, I mean, I'll deep dive just a little bit if you'll indulge me, but there was a particular point that um, that transition happened. So at 28 um, years old, back in 2014, um, I actually came out. So I had transitioned from someone who was suffering significantly um, with a suppressed issue, which was my sexuality, unsure about my sexual orientation. Um, and I was married. I had two children. It was, it was a considerably tough part of my life. And the transition that I went through, fully supported by my ex-wife, who's you know now my best friend and we co-parent together, was the moment that I went, hold on a second, I don't need to project anything. What I was attempting to do was tell society what they wanted to hear or what I thought they wanted to hear, which was to have this alpha bravo male who doesn't talk about pain, who doesn't talk about vulnerability. And I was like, it's actually killing me. And it nearly did get to that point. Um, My mental health was terrible. I was completely overweight, completely depressed. My diet was out of whack. And I wasn't being the best Ben that I could be. And that included not being the best dad that I could be. So when I made that change in my life and I made that transition, um, 
things really changed for me for the better. It's been on the up ever since because I let go of the shackles of what I thought everyone wanted and just showed my true self and was really vulnerable and really open to people's feedback and criticisms and thoughts. But when I did come out, people were like, you know, a year later, they were like, wow, like this is a completely different Ben, not just how I dressed, which is incredibly important to me. Uh, and for anyone that wants to see Sweet Roll look good, it is actually important. <laughs> Definitely. Um, it wasn't just my dress that changed, my whole self changed. And I feel like I'm a better person. Um, and I was really well supported once again by the unique people in my inner sanctum. Uh, I just wanted to share that moment for people to understand there was a tipping point for me. And if you're carrying anything, if there's a voice inside or a heavy pain that you're carrying, um, you need to let that go. You need to find a way to tap into that vulnerability, um, share that story and use it to propel you forward, not hold you back. Because as I said before, if you're not moving forward, you are most certainly moving backwards. I, I Man, thanks so much for sharing that, Ben, because I think that additional context for me made a few pieces of the puzzle kind of match up. I could, that there needed to be something big there. And, and you reiterated earlier about in a professional context, how vulnerability is so important. Clearly that's the same in your personal life. And the two are inter, interlinked, right? Professional development and personal development, they are the same thing, right? So if you can feel free and liberated personally, it's going to feel the same way in your, in your business life. And you've managed to find find the way to do that and and which i can only assume took great courage especially how deep down the rabbit you hole hole you were in terms of how you think people perceived you you had children you had a, a female partner at the time and then you flipped that so there's probably not a whole lot of not a whole lot to be really be scared about after you've done that in your life you know <laughs> that's about the scariest thing yeah, you can do that's right it was <laughs> it really was and I think being able to come back from the brink and just a very very quick trigger warning uh, around self-harm for anyone that doesn't want to continue this is the bit where you turn off but I literally was on a bridge and that was the moment for me that I thought I would be better gone to everybody else in my life and I think, you know, I don't often share it, but I think it's important for people to understand that you, can't, you can come back. There, isn't, there doesn't just need to be a choice between life and death. Um, in that particular moment, you know, some, you could say that maybe I was too weak, but actually I was strong enough to say, you know what, my life is valuable and what I have to contribute to the world. And in that moment, it was for my kids, it was my children. I would never, I couldn't do that to them. Um, but the power leaving that moment and, you know, literally driving away was F this, you know, I, that, was my, that was my breaking point. No more. You are not going to put yourself down any longer. You are not going to drive your, your self-worth and your value um, any lower. It's time to come back. You're worth more than this. You've got things to share with the world. Um, and it's been onwards and upwards ever since, and I'm really proud of that. Outstanding. Look, I, I mean, I think anyone who's, who listens to this can clearly see that or hear how important it is if you are, as you said, Ben, if you're having those thoughts just to really, really challenge them because, you know, you've gone on to incredible things. And as I can see it, more and more incredible stuff's in your future. Yeah. Well, well I for one, very glad you're still with us because I think, Thank you, um, so much. you know, that's, that's, yeah, an incredible story to tell. What, what else, being a CEO, having a CEO hat on, what, what has been unexpected about having this, that role? What, what, did you, what do you think? I guess there would be preconceptions. You'd go, well, when I'm the CEO, I am A, B, and C. But has there been anything about being the head that, that to you has been surprising? Um, look, not really, to be honest. I kind of... Um, I've walked into a semi-public role. You know, people can easily Google you. They know who you are. They want to comment on your thoughts and opinions. Um, I think maybe the one thing for me was that not everyone agrees with you. I thought because I was so passionate in the very beginning, maybe my late 20s, early 30s, I was kind of like, everyone's going to agree. And then someone would disagree um, with maybe a statement that I made or an article that I published or a podcast that I've been on. And it hurt at first. I was like, well, that's not nice. Don't attack me. Um, but uh, this, what I think 
eventually I was like, okay, it's, it's actually really healthy to have um, differences of opinions and, and to read into people's things. But the one thing that um, I've learned, particularly over the last two years, is that people hide behind social media and it's very easy for them to attack. Yes. Don't, yeah, don't take that personally. You know, people can say what they want. It's, it's their right to do so. We live in such a democratic nation and world that they can do so. Just don't let it get to you. Um, you know, it, it can be challenging out there because the only voices that we really hear around online kind of bullying or hate is either from influencers um, or from um, children and young people. And they're both incredibly important, particularly children and young people. That's a whole nother podcast around online bullying. Mm. But there's a, a big group of us in the middle that actually experience it. Now, I, I think the other thing that we've experienced is the polarisation, whether it be vaccinations, lockdowns, public health mandates, people are now fighting and they're attacking each other because they want to defend their view instead of sharing their view with an understanding that other people have other views and that's okay. Um, it's like, we, you know, this is, I'm putting my stake in the ground and I'm sticking to it. Um, the one thing that I've learned is just to let that go. If you are wanting to share a public opinion, you have to be prepared for people not to agree with you. And when they don't agree with you, you need to go back to what I said before, which is listen to hear, not to respond. Um, so yeah, there's my little hot tip around social media and um, and online commenting. I love it. I, I think the the ability to to listen to hear is something that's 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 an earned ability for most people. I th- I don't think we do it by default. You consciously have to control yourself sometimes to not be trying to come up with the one up to every response, but just to receive and to listen and to educate yourself. I don't think most of us default to that. So that, that one tip in and of itself is, is really powerful and something that I have the, I guess, the benefit of being a, a podcaster that I really get to lean into that, right? Like I get to just listen to what somebody has to say. And I can't, like, I, I, I can't preconceive what they're going to say. It, we, we have to, we're riffing, right? We're vibing, we're playing jazz here. So I can't kind of jump across them. So for me, it, I get to polish it professionally, but I think in everyday life, anyone can polish it, whether you're with the churning out cafes, as a, uh, coffees as a barista, and the person comes up to the line and has something to tell you, you know, or, or if it's in a, in a white collar professional context, you know, just being receptive and not necessarily even having to come up with all the answers, but just to listen, it is super powerful. And one of the the things that I think has really boded so well for me in personal and professional life for my whole, as far as I've been alive. So I think that's, that's a really powerful gem. Is there anything you've done as a CEO, which you thought this is going to be kick ass, this is going to be my defining moment. And then it just fell flat. (laughs) <laughs> you had any of those moments? <laughs> yeah. Look, of course I have. Of course I have. <laughs> I look, there's I could probably roll off five or ten where I was like, I've got the, I'm in here, like I'm on. Uh, and I get all G'd up and I'm all revved up and then the and it just falls flat immediately. Crickets, um, crickets. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, I, and I've learned that that's okay. I used to be so embarrassed when you know you pitch an idea or something to your team and everyone's kind of like, mm, not really. Like, <laughs> or it's warm. been done before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This one, I, I might tap into my vanity a little bit. Of, um, it, it was kind of funny. So we, uh, I was um, nominated for Pro Bono's um, Impact 25, which they do for the last couple of years. They announce the 25 most influential and inspiring people in the social economy. Uh, and a nomination came through in 2020. They shortlist down to 200. And then basically they announced the top 25. Um, and I made the top 25. That was wonderful. We were really excited. And then they do this kind of surprise top three and they announced like an innovator of the year. Um, and I was um, very happy and pleased that I won innovator of the year and I was in the top 25. Um, but COVID happened and I never got the moment. Like I never got to actually stand up on stage and accept oh. the award and be really proud of it. And I was explaining this to my partner who's very, he's very down to earth and he is very simple and he'll tell you how it is. Um, and he's like, Ben, people are dying. And I was just like, oh, shit. Yeah, good point. I was doing all of this at home. Now I'm showing this with everyone. I was like, oh, I'm really disappointed. I don't get my ceremony and I don't get to take all my, you know, friends and colleagues to this massive event. He's like, people are dying. 
And I was oh, like, no. I, might, I, I might take a seat. I might just take a seat and shut up. It, it means nothing. Yeah, man, it's it's hard. It's hard not to want that moment of glory. I yeah, mean, you work, you I work wanted really it. hard. I wanted it. I was desperate for I it. I wanted it. I would want the moment of glory. But yeah, the the rug was definitely pulled out from under you there. <laughs> it was, and it was so true. It was such a humbling moment. It was absolutely such a humbling moment. Um, what a, the other thing that happens all the time for me, I'm a, a big scribbler, right? Like I'm a very visual person. So quite often I, I have pen and paper next to the bed. So quite often I'll kind of wake up and I'll be like, oh, let's do this or let's do that. Um, and I'll draw it, you know, or draw a model or a program or a response or something and I'll leave it to the next day and, you know, I'll look at it and be like, oh, do I share that with the team or not? Uh, and sometimes, you know, I've got them everywhere. I've got like these lists and I've got these models and diagrams and I'll send them to the team and, like sometimes it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Who should we get to fund it? And, you know, but every now and then there's just like radio silence and no <laughs> one responds to the email. So I leave it and I'll leave it for like a good day or two and then I'll just respond back, S-H-I-T idea. And it's literally everyone responds back, yes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, just confirming, just confirming it was a terrible idea. Oh, that's very good. Very good. I could just imagine them just waiting, waiting to see who's going to be first to respond. And once that first yes. SHIT affirmative comes in, everyone jumps on. Like, yo, yeah, yo. yeah, yeah, that's right. They're all jumping on. Like, damn, that's uh, it sounded great up here. Um, absolutely. But what I probably need to understand is 3 a.m. is not the best time to be coming up with, you know, innovative service models or funding pitches. <laughs> Leave it for the next day. I guess this is another really good reason to have people who are smarter and or complement your skill set is that they can act as that filter because it's you know the, the your job is largely the creativity part you come up with these crazy big ideas and not all of them should get through the filter but the ones that do you know have been vetted by people who are perceiving this from different angles and they result in an in a powerful execution and one of those powerful executions i believe is the little social concept uh can you tell us a little bit about that please ben yeah i'm always this is my baby um i have many babies but the little social concept is a really powerful way to deliver impact through social enterprise so we started with a, a small kind of coffee shop behind a roller door on Hosier Lane. Uh, and it was sort of, you know, in a fragmented way, in an unstructured way, um, training young people in barista skills and whatnot. And it was a great little model. And, but it wasn't profitable. It was costing us a fortune. It was onerous. It was difficult to manage. So um, we brought in a, a cafe manager. Actually, the um, shout out to Celeste Norris who is our social enterprise leader. She owned the cafe behind my old work many years ago and I met her, you know, making my long blacks. Back then it was a latte, I think. Um, <laughs> anyway, she sold her business and we put our heads together and then we got all the right people in the room and thought, what we need is concentrated markets. We need big volume and we need great product. Then we can bring the young people in. We were trying to put the young people first. What we actually needed to do was deliver Melbourne's best coffee, Melbourne's best product in a timely fashion with a significant brand change. And then we bring the young people in because people don't go to coffee shops to help young people. People go to coffee shops to get, get their hit. And then if it's helping someone, that's our lure to get them back in. So we pitched it. Um, and just before the pandemic started, we went from one to three coffee shops. Um, the latter two opened in the middle of COVID. Um, we, um, the big one is at Alfred Hospital on Commercial Road in Melbourne. As part of the Alfred's investment in the Innovation Centre, we set up a massive um, cafe which uh, is turning over probably, uh, we've gone from about 120,000 a year turnover. This year we'll turn over 1.7 million with a profit margin of 12%. Ooh. We employed, employed two staff. We now employ 17 uh, across three locations and we'll help around 100 young people each year. But we partnered with the best. So we've got Reverence Coffee, La Mazzocco Coffee Machines. We've got Zupa in doing our food. We've managed all the margins correctly. We were able to pay staff above the award and we went great product first and the traffic just stuck and people love the message because while they're there, not only are they getting their coffee here, they're getting great lunch or breakfast, 
they know that they're impacting young people because there's a team of young people being trained. Um, and then they can pay it forward and leave a coffee donation for our clients who are experiencing homelessness on Hosier Lane. So they walk into that coffee shop now. You know, when they leave drinking their coffee, they they get their hit and they're like, "Wow, like this is creating significant impact." So the little social is um, is our baby, but it is commercially viable. It is high impact and it serves Melbourne's best coffee. We are about to launch our fourth in Broadmeadows in partnership with a major real estate developer who's building a huge industrial complex. And we're looking at our fifth on the outside, uh, the outskirts of Melbourne's West. Most, like 90% of social enterprises exist in inner city fringe locations. We're pushing them out to the suburbs because we see value in going to where the young people are and making sure that they're trained in their community. So we're really proud of the concept. Um, it's high performing, it's successful, it's becoming a huge beast. And ultimately by 2025, we want to have helped 5,000 young people. So, you know, we're on a mission and you'll see little social cafes popping up everywhere. But beyond that, we're extending the idea um, at but the can, end of this year. Oh, sorry, go. Can, sorry to interrupt, but can you just give a little bit of a, a, a rundown on how specifically those cafes are helping young people? Because the staff themselves uh, ha- can be facing difficulties, right? But they're getting training and support through working at these uh, the Little Sprout Cafe. That's correct. Yeah, so what happens is we hire um, hospitality experienced staff that are full-time paid employees or some of them casuals and they anchor at each um, coffee site and we have trained baristas and they then train the young people that we bring in. So we target um, young people who are unemployed. So we run a range of transition to work programs right across Melbourne. Young people who are unemployed connect with us to help get a job or get back to study. Um, we have a um, we have three employment options, but the pathway is a pre-employment program where we talk about hygiene, we talk about um, getting to work on time, presentation, um, working in the hospitality environment, all transferable to different industries. Mm-hmm. And they get a four they get a four week uh, internship, so they'll come in and do work experience. The first level is unpaid, the second level is paid, and the third paid the third level is a job. A lot of young people get to the end of four weeks and they're like they're bursting, they're like ready to work. So they'll go back to their sort of their job coach or youth coach from their program and they'll get a job in their local community. Um, The second um, sort of tranche need a little bit more support and maybe these are young people with significant mental illness or a physical or intellectual disability and we put them on paid traineeship. So they get a full year of paid employment and lots of intensive on-site support. And the third one is if you're ready and you're great and you can turn out a a wonderful Melbourne magic, you're employed straight away. And we've done that for a lot of young people. So um, we also take referrals from the community for young people that just need a bit of a step up. Maybe they're shy. Maybe they haven't worked before. They're the kids that we target, the ones that just need that little bit of support. So even say someone has maybe a little bit of agoraphobia or something like that after being in lockdown for so long, doesn't really feel comfortable getting approaching people about work and putting their hand up and doing all that sort of stuff, they could maybe come to you guys and say, look, I'd like to get into this system just as like an onboarding point to get me back out there and into the workforce and and face forward with people again whilst earning a little bit of cash down the track. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, understanding that there's, you know, significant complexities and everybody's got their own story. We don't throw all of the young people straight into the cafe. At our Glenroy headquarters in the north of Melbourne, we actually have a simulated cafe environment. Come into the office first. We've got a, a, a big machine that they can sort of get comfortable with. Um, maybe they'll help with reception or they'll volunteer in the office uh, and they just kind of get used to the environment. Then the next step would be to go to our Rosanna kiosk, which I know you've been to. Love Rosanna kiosk. Great coffee. Beautiful, isn't it? Great yeah, spot. thank you. Great shout out. Yeah, we're at Rosanna train station, open six days a week if anyone wants to pop down. But that's a small environment. So then we send the young person there. And then if and when they're ready, then they go to the Alfred, which the Alfred is on 6am to 3pm, does not stop. There's a queue of at least 20 doctors and nurses out the door all day. (laughs) And we have have nine staff on just to serve coffee and food all day. So then you get ready for that environment. And if you can make it at the Alfred, if we don't offer you a job, somebody else is going to offer you a job because there's a hospitality shortage. So, right. yeah, you're going to be a gun. I love if it. You, 
if you get to that level, you are, you're dealing with the sort of high, fast paced barista environment that it's, that's about as challenging as it's going to get, especially pissed yeah, off doctors right. who are grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that. It, look, that's, I won't touch on that. The Alfred, we love you and we appreciate your support, but the customers can be <laughs> a little coffee. bit challenging at times. That's right. <laughs> Come down and they've got the pager on and they're in all of their PPE and they're like, just give me that coffee. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. a great environment. It's it's an outstanding initiative. I love what you've done with it. It works so well. I mean, I went to the road, road one beautiful morning, rode down from Ivanhoe to Rosanna on my push bike, seeing the birds, loving spring, got a delicious coffee, chatted to the, the lovely staff who were really sweet and nice, took some photos, then was able to pay for it so that someone else gets the benefit. I just thought the whole concept is so simple and it's sometimes it's the simple ones are the best right like it's just straightforward and as you said the genius is that the product that you're selling which is largely the primary product is coffee is excellent you have an outstanding product so that's gonna it's gonna bring people in my one gripe is that you don't sell any sort of uh Attire. I wanted to buy like a youth project yeah. t-shirt from that <laughs> or something. I wanted, to, I wanted to feel like I was in the team somehow. You want something like this? Yeah, it's um, yes. I wanted that. I want to I want to buy yeah. a t-shirt. I'm with you, Nick, um, who heads up our, our sort of marketing and brand function, uh, is all over this. I won't swing my computer, but I've actually got a rack right here. Uh, of all the youth projects um, attire that would definitely be coming out. So, yeah, watch this space. Little social T-shirts and aprons and hats coming soon. Oh, very good. Very good. I urge, I strongly urge anyone to get down to one. They are, they are great. I'll be probably heading down to one again soon because it's just I'm blessed that I can just ride my bike straight down to one and just kick back. And Rosanna's lovely and quiet. I can see why you use that as like a nice um, a nice sort of onboarding point to scale up the 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 people who are learning to work behind the, the, I suppose, behind the tools, learning to be a barista or dealing with people face-to-face. So it's it's an awesome yeah. venture. But it is, and I should, what I should do, sorry, Mike, before I have to give a shout out to Banyul um, City Council because um, they are the reason why that has been successful. They funded most of the fit out. Um, they helped build the relationship with Metro because it's had a train station. So the reason why I really want to give them a shout out is to demonstrate um, that all three levels of government have got to get behind social enterprise. The movement is here. Social enterprise is not coming. It's arrived. We are sustainable. We are environmentally conscious. We make profit and we make impact. But it takes large corporate and government partners to make it work. So Banyul, check them out. They are award winning um, for their investment in social enterprise. And we really appreciate their support. Big up, Banyul. Rest of the councils, get on board. Stop being lazy. We need more of these yes. projects because it's what uh-huh. the people want. Don't be a late adopter. You'll be left behind. You know, this is what's right. going to happen. You don't want to be that council. Once you're that council, no. nobody cares about you. So <laughs> look at Banyul. Now, let's talk youth projects just for a little bit, um, Ben, because they're kind of, I guess youth projects is the umbrella and little socials, one of the, the rungs coming off the umbrella. Is that kind of correct? Sure, it is, yeah. Yeah. So Youth Projects, well, we've been around for 37 years. We continue to evolve and mature and modernise what we do, but at the heart of what we do um, is deliver a wraparound holistic support model. So we support around 10,000 people a year. Um, Our HQ is in uh, Glenroy, Melbourne's north, which has not only been um, the centre of the coronavirus outbreaks, it's also uh, endured low employment rates, high poverty rates for a very, very long time. So what we've done, particularly in the north, the west, and we're growing into the east of Melbourne, is scale a response that supports young people. We deliver assertive outreach into the community. We do mental health supports, alcohol and drug counselling, jobs and skills training. We do a range of harm reduction programs, particularly around drug use, overdose and whatnot. Um, And that's growing to 17 locations right across Melbourne. Uh, and right out to the fringe suburbs and eventually into regional Vic. And down in Melbourne, we provide Melbourne's premier homelessness and health centre, the living room. It's a drop-in centre that works at the intersection of health and homelessness. We do 23,000 contacts a year there. We have teams that work until 2am. But at the heart of that, the living room uh, and the little social next door, um, we do 
phone calls, showers, uh, toilet, laundry, clothes, food, um, Wi-Fi, charging, anything you need when you're sleeping rough or at risk of homelessness, we provide. And then we wrap around a mental health and alcohol and drug response to that, as well as brokering um, housing referrals. I think we, we've got about 762 people housed during the pandemic, which is pretty incredible. So we continue to grow um, those supports. We have a team of night nurses who work on the streets of Melbourne. We see a team of nurses with backpacks on at 11 o'clock at night in, on, um, on Swanson Street. Um, that's us. We're out there reaching the people that need us both, uh, most. What we do and everything that we do focuses on social impact, but also we prove uh, our economic impact. You know, we do a cost-benefit analysis on everything that we do. Uh, and what we know, particularly in our health centre in the CBD, is every contact for a person experiencing homelessness, so phone charging, shower, fresh clothes, senior doctor, senior nurse, uh, and, and potentially got a housing referral, costs around $56. That's how much we get from the taxpayer uh, and coupled in with our philanthropic supporters. Um, we know that a significant percentage of those contacts are preventing an emergency department presentation, you know, which is where people who are homeless go if they're in crisis or they need something. Now, pre-admission, that contact costs around $488, and on admission, it skyrockets over 1000 in the public mm -hmm. system. So what we're attempting to do is say, let's care, let's be compassionate, but actually what we do not only makes social sense, it makes economic sense, uh, and we're using that narrative to drive continual growth right across Victoria uh, and soon potentially beyond the borders as well. Amazing. What, what an outstanding initiative. And Youth Projects has been around since the early 80s? Correct. Yeah, it's a year older than me. It's 37 this year. Amazing. Amazing. Well, how are the challenges changing for youth projects? Is, is it, are we largely facing the same social issues or are they just same, same, but different? What's, what's going on from a, from a broader landscape viewpoint? Sure. There's, there's a couple of things. Um, one, um, our understanding of and connection to mental health and mental illness um, has considerably grown. So prevalence of mental health and emergence of those issues um, grow significantly. There's a rise in alcohol and drug use. Uh, there's a rise in youth homelessness. Um, and there's a rise in incidents of family violence or reported family violence. That's the one thing as we learn and grow as a society to connect with that. So they're kind of the big issues that we're facing. Youth unemployment continues to be a big issue uh, and Indigenous health continues to be a big issue. Behind all of that, there's some policy reform coming. There's the big housing bill in Victoria. Um, you know, there's also 150 million um, that's been invested in the homelessness to home program, case managing people into sustained tenancy. Um, there's significant money going to the youth mental health sector. So there are funding shifts coming, um, but every generation changes, right? Every generation is different. Uh, and at the moment, the young people that we're supporting, particularly those that are coming from um, vulnerable households um, are falling further and further behind. The mainstream schooling system still hasn't shifted to life skills education. It's focused on memory retention, which doesn't work for all kids. So I think the problems have always been there, but our maturity and understanding the complexities of the problem and how to solve them is evolving and becoming better, but it's never quick enough. It hasn't been yeah. quick enough. We could fix homelessness in Australia like that. Hundreds of billions of dollars were spent during this pandemic, rightfully so, keeping the country afloat. But if we can do that, let's use the money we have to actually build more housing and give every single person a house. We need to change the school system. That school system needs to be flexible in its approach for all young people. It needs to be about teaching life skills. Um, you know, some kids will want to learn algebra. Good, they can go to algebra class. But some kids are going to need to learn how to do their tax because they're going to be an apprentice at 16 and have no idea what superannuation is. So there's lots of different moving pieces to the changes that we see. Um, but right now we need a coordinated response across all levels of government to say, we have an opportunity. We've learned during COVID that a significant number of Australians are only this far away from the poverty line. Let's extend that. Let's support them. Let's put policy in place to make sure that they're supported and then lift. Let's raise the new, the job seeker allowance. $44 a day is not good enough. It is terrible. It should be condemned across the world. 
Um, and let's keep everybody at home. Let's just do it. Finland did it. Work well for them. I don't see why we can't do it. These, these things are, are just on our doorstep, doorstep, aren't they, Ben? I feel like with people like yourself and the, the, the community you have working for youth projects and your, the projects that flow off those, it is getting this kind of momentum that it needs to make these things happen in bubble Australia. And I think, you know, we can, how can we help speed that up? What's, what's the best way for people like myself and listening just to, to help increase this momentum. So we get what we need to sooner. Yeah, good. You know, let's be optimistic about this Change is here and it's happening and you can be a part of it. First thing is educate yourself. You know, we have the power of our phones at our fingertips and they live in our pockets pretty much 24 seven. So research social issues, have a look at what's actually happening in your local community uh, and then have a look at what's happening at a policy level because there's things that you can do. You can donate to a local charity, you could volunteer your time, you can sign up to national campaigns. Um, anyone that's listening should Google everybody's home campaign, become a signatory, sign the petition um, you know, there's at a policy in a federal level or even a state level, you know, email or call your local candidates or local MP about what they're doing about the issues in your community. Uh, I think it's just educating, becoming connected uh, and then finding a way. And if you can't, reach out to someone like me. You know, you'll find your local CEO of each community organisation is interested in having a chat. Just email in and ask what you can do to support. Um, we'll always find a way to help you use your valuable skills. That's terrific. I'm going to ask you a, a final question, Ben, <clears throat> and I think this is one that a lot of people struggle with. So you're just walking along the street and you see someone is out the front of your local Woolworths or whatever it is uh, asking for money. The, the first thing that probably goes through your head is if I give them money, they're going to spend it on X or maybe the thought of should I be giving this person money why can't they just use the systems that are in place to get money? Should we or should we not be charitable in these circumstances? And are, are there times when we should and times when we shouldn't? I, I think a lot of people are confused about this. Yeah, I think forget being charitable, let's be human. So I think we really need to understand the crux of charity and the, the reason why charity exists is because of the failure of government. We wouldn't exist if the government served all of its people correctly. So there's a couple of things. The first thing that I'd do is I'd just say, G'day, how are you? You know, you don't know, think money first, think yeah, human like, first. Engage. Hey, how are, someone says to you, Hey, have you got any spare change? Say, so, Oh, you know, my immediate response is, Who are you to judge what they spend their money on? Mm. You know, when you get paid by your employer, your employer doesn't say, Can you please send me a checklist of what you'll be spending your salary <laughs> on each week? Right. You know, if, you're, if you don't want to give money, then, you know, maybe give time and say, I don't have any change. You know, I hope you're doing okay. Is there anything else I can do to help? Um, but just be human. Like it's it's their dignified um, ability to spend their money on what they see fit. And not all homeless people spend their money on alcohol and drugs. A great story this lady um, wrote on LinkedIn the other day about how she was concerned about giving this woman who was sleeping rough out the front of her shop money. And she gave, you know, this guy walked past and gave her $50. And the woman's response was, see, now I can sleep tonight because a hostel is $49 for the night. So you don't know anybody's story. So my tips would be, one, talk to them like you're a human. Forget the charity. Forget everything else. They're still a human being. I always say g'day. You'll always see me down on South Bank. I always take cash because I'm like just, you know, it could be food. It could be anything. It could be a taxi to see their loved ones. Who gives a shit? Um, be kind, give them what you have. Uh, and if you can't be kind and you don't have any money, just keep walking, just smile, keep walking. And that's it. Keep it simple. Just be a decent human being. That's right. Mm. Ben, any, any last uh, comments, anything you'd like to promote? I'll, I'll put everything that you've mentioned in the show notes anyway. So. Yeah, no, look, uh, I just really appreciate the, um, the opportunity, Mike. I'm, I'm really glad that you reached out and we connected and had the opportunity to have this conversation. Uh, I'm not the only voice. There's lots of other voices, but I hope that what I've been able to share is useful to someone um, and just remind everyone to just be kind. That's the best thing that we can do right now. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I really appreciate you sharing uh, such great insight, not just to your life, but to the whole, I guess, the 
the broad spectrum spectrum of homelessness and and disadvantaged youth and all the stuff that's going on in our society that we can all be part of the solution. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. You can find all the latest happenings on the website, doingepicstuff.com or our Instagram, Instagram forward slash doing epic stuff. We out.